Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark, where this month we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of Lewis Carroll's classic, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. A timeless children's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is 150 this July. Inspired by real events and a real child, the book was dreamt up by Lewis Carroll on a July day in 1862 in Oxford while he was on a river outing with the Little family. We'll be joined by Robert Douglas Fairhurst, who's written the definitive biography of Lewis and Alice. And we'll also be chatting about the design of Alice from fashion to film and the iconic John Tenniel images with Suzanne Dean, the creative director at Random House. So sit back and let your minds become curious as we fall down the rabbit hole into the magical world of Alice. My first guest is Robert Douglas Fairhurst, Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford and author of The Story of Alice, Lewis Carroll and the Secret History of Wonderland. Drawing on previously unpublished material, Robert traces the creation and influence of the Alice books against a shifting cultural landscape. The birth of photography, changing definitions of childhood and sexuality, and the tensions inherent in the transition between the Victorian and the modern worlds. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Hello. This is such an extraordinary year for Alice, isn't it? 150 years since the publication of the of the first book. Um, and an enormous welter of things. Exhibitions, theatrical productions, a musical by Damon Alburn, and even, I think the publication of a novel by Carol's own great-granddaughter. That's right, Vanessa Tate's novel, that's right. Um, Yes, in 1990, which was the last time a lot of people got very excited about Alice, the New York Times ran a headline which was, That Girl Is Everywhere. Uh, And this year, that girl really is everywhere. And the musical you mentioned is the most interesting thing uh, because it's starting at the uh, Manchester International Festival. It's then transferring to um, London, to the South Bank, the National Theatre. And it's the most modern Alice we've got because um, it it takes the idea of the rabbit hole as being the smartphone screen that we all carry around with us in our pockets. We all disappear into our own little wonderland, down our own personal rabbit holes. And it's just one example of how... Every culture, every time reinvents Wonderland for themselves. That is a vast part of your book, isn't it? The afterlife, as it were, of Alice and how many incarnations she has had. And I mean, that is an extraordinary idea, isn't it? And immediately persuasive. We look at our phones and then suddenly we're transported somewhere else and our own mind reflects our surroundings back against us. Well, the word reflection is interesting because, of course, in the second Alice book, she um, goes through a, a looking glass Uh, into looking glass land but then Alice herself over 150 years has become something like a looking glass she's become one of those funfair mirrors that we use to reflect distorted versions of our own fears and hopes uh, and anxieties back at ourselves so over 150 years we've used Alice to think about the suffragette movement and the first world war and the rise of cinema and mushrooming drug use in the 1960s and now of course it's the internet but it means that you can never pin Alice down she's like a thought bubble just when you think you've managed to to catch 
capture her, she floats away somewhere else. It's true, isn't it? Whatever sort of interpretation you grew up is often the one that sticks with you. So to me, it's a sort of hippie interpretation, the psychedelia in a way. Um, but tell us where Alice started for you, because it was as a very young child, wasn't it? It was, and like a lot of people, I knew the Alice stories before I knew how to read. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Even if you haven't read the books, you know the stories because they're part of the cultural atmosphere that we all breathe in. Now, I think... But I can't be sure because memories play tricks on us. But I think I got to know the stories with one of those read-along books with um, a record uh, which would go beep after you get to the end of every page and you would read along. And I think it was probably an abridgment and it would have been related to the 1951 uh, cartoon that Disney put out. So for me, it's bound up with learning how to read and realising that, as for a lot of other people, Wonderland is not just a state of mind. It's the whole world of books. It's the world of the imagination. But of course, a lot of children's books, a lot of books that we read when we're very small, are concerned with reflecting the world back to us in some way as it is, of teaching us what the world is like. Now, the world is not like Wonderland, is it? Well, not for most people. <laughs> you'd hope, you'd hope. In fact, it's funny you say that because um, there are large slices of the real world which seem to have been taken over by Alice and the other creatures. Um, here in London, where we're recording, um, there is a whole office block which includes a, a, a huge fiberglass white rabbit in the corridor uh, and a Queen of Hearts boardroom. And I don't know about you, I would be worried if I was going to be summoned to the Queen of Hearts boardroom. Yes, but that, yes, exactly, off with your head. Off with your head, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or the, the, a huge huge bronze statue in, in New York Central Park. Or if you go to Tokyo, uh, there's a, a, a restaurant where all the waitresses dress up in uh, blue pinafore dresses and you can get uh, mock turtle uh, salads and caterpillar sushi rolls and so on. So although you're absolutely right that we don't think that the real world is like Wonderland, we keep trying to translate bits of the real world to make it look like Wonderland. Just tell us a little bit about how you came to write this this book, because it's about, as we've been talking about, the sort of afterlife of Alice, but it's also very much about the man who created Alice and, in a way, his sort of dual lives. Yes, and and, and I know it's, it's difficult to talk about dual lives without making someone sound like either Tweedledum and Tweedledee or like Jekyll and Hyde, but in fact it was much more straightforward than that. He was just two strangers who happened to share the one skin, on the one hand, he was the rather dour, um, rather, um, I don't know, kind of ordinary in some ways, uh, mathematics don, um, who was a boring teacher and uh, didn't write very exciting mathematics books either. Um, and on the other hand, he was also this extraordinary, um, lively, fun-loving uh, children's story writer uh, who collected uh, child friends like you know butterflies or stamps. I mean, he actually gave these two people different names. I mean, not in the way that, you know, writers do sometimes have pseudonyms, but they were two distinct sort of parts of his life, weren't they? They, they did seem to be, yes. So the Char Charles Dodgson, the Reverend Charles Dodgson, was the Christchurch Don. Uh, and then Lewis Carroll was someone who he invented on the page, who really only existed in a world of words. He was the ideal child friend. He was the one who was full of wisecracks and a sense of fun. But it's as if... Although he, he enjoyed meeting new girls, um, they were mostly girls, um, and, and entertaining them with stories and puzzles and jokes and tricks, 
he, he devoted most of his energy to entertaining them through letters and through stories um, and through puzzles that he sent to them through the post. So it's as if the real Lewis Carroll was someone he needed to invent when he was mm. on his own. This had come, hadn't it, from childhood in a way. I mean, he was one of a great number of children and he was the sort of family entertainer, the storyteller. Yes, I mean, he had seven sisters, which sounds like the start of a musical, <laughs> 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 um, but, but actually wasn't. And also three brothers. He was the oldest uh, uh, son. And so, yes, he was the family entertainer in chief. Um, it's not till I actually stayed in his old childhood home uh, in Darsbury um, in, in North Yorkshire that I, I realised something about why he developed in the way he did. Um, the current owner has very kindly allowed me to stay there. And there are still traces of him in the house. You can still see uh, uh, window panes where he scratched his initials, CLD. They've still got little treasures he buried under the floorboards. Things that would then later come out in the Alice books, like a thimble uh, or a, a glove. Um, you know, little kind of fragments of his childhood he could never quite get rid of. But also, outside the house, there is the most beautiful walled garden. And it's very similar to the walled garden of the deanery in Christchurch, where he used to play with Alice Little and her sisters. And that's when you realise that, in fact, for him, childhood was this, this paradise that he felt he'd been exiled from. But whereas for most people, once that door is clanked shut behind you, you can never reopen it. For him, he could, by making friends with Alice and her sisters, reopen that door, go back into that enchanted garden. And then, of course, he could tell a story about a little girl opening up another door into another enchanted garden, which is the world he called Wonderland. So Alice Little was the daughter of the Dean of Christchurch, where, of course, Dodgson spent his entire life, didn't he? I mean, that's where you know he, he immediately sort of institutionalised himself, as it were. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. And you can see why, because um, Oxford, as I know, you know, to my cost, is a place of, you know, eccentrics and uh, oddballs. Um, and it's, you know, mad on the inside and maddening on the outside. Um, but it also has um, something very peculiar, which school teachers will also recognise, which is that people get older, but they also stay the same age. In other words, there's an annual recycling in which the people who are 21 leave and a new group of 18-year-olds come in. And that means that it's like being a hamster on a wheel, that you can carry on yourself getting older and older and older, but you're surrounded by a world that seems to stay pretty much the same. And for someone like Carol, who loved photography and who told stories which he could then fix in print... That meant that Oxford was another world which seemed to be trapped like a, um, like a fly in amber. Um, and he himself, if not trapped, then willingly chose never to leave it. Tell us a little bit more about this business with photography, because, of course, it was a sort of a, a, a new thing, a controversial thing in many ways. Yes, um, and we now think of it as something more like an art form. At the time, it was much more like um, a kind of parlour game trick or, or amateur science. Um, Carol was one of the earliest people to take it up as a hobby, and he loved it because it was a matter of all or nothing, that he was an absolutist in everything. Things were either right or wrong. They were black or they were white. Now, of course, photography was literally a matter of black and white. Uh, but it also meant that if anyone moved in the minute it took to take a photograph, then their features would become blurry. They would dissolve. And that meant the photograph would be a failure. 
And that's the word that he keeps coming back to in his diaries. So that's one reason why he loved it. He also loved photography because it was a way of um, dressing up and encouraging children to dress up and play games and then to capture them forever. Again, like a butterfly on a board. So that meant that although um, little girls and boys usually grow up, in his photograph album, he could keep them there in exactly the same way forever. Yes, as you as you report him saying in the book, you know, better leave off growing up after you're seven. Yeah, little you know. girls can stay little mm. if you take photographs of them. They can shrink. And of course, that's one of the things that happens to Alice. She shrinks and she expands uncontrollably. And that's exactly what you can do with a bath of photographic chemicals. Of course, the relationship between Alice Little and Dodgson, and particularly uh, in this aspect of photography, of the sort of gaze on this on this small girl, has set alarm bells ringing in in generations of subsequent readers. I wonder how you how you thought about that when you were writing the book. Well, I, I wanted to be true to the complexity of that relationship, and also to the uneasiness we feel, but also to the lack of uneasiness a lot of people at the time felt. And trying to juggle those things together is, is, is very tricky. Um, these days, of course, um, in the light of um, scandals about uh, uh, paedophiles uh, and uh, our fears about childhood safety and innocence more, more generally, of course we're likely to think the worst. Um, there is no evidence that anything happened. Did anything happen in the space between his ears? In other words, was he repressing certain desires he couldn't articulate even to himself? Well, maybe. Well, maybe. But we simply don't know. And that's something I did want to do in the book, to be to be true to the, the complexity, but also um, the kind of gaps in the record and not to simply glibly um, gloss it over with a modern interpretation in which everyone who spends their time with children therefore must be some kind of repressed paedophile. Well, it's very interesting also that you you don't uh, present a world where that was completely normalised in the, in the in the Victorian Oxford society that you're presenting. It was a matter of gossip to an extent. Um, and I suppose the sense that I took away from it that people felt he was suffering from some kind of unrequited love. Yes, and, and, and he possibly was. I mean, that, that certainly was one strain of gossip at the time. Um, I mean, in some ways, one of the reasons perhaps why we are so attracted to the story now is because its ambiguities speak to our own uncertainties. Um, and by that I mean that um, the Victorians were very good at, on the one hand, sentimentalising childhood, and on the other hand, sexualising it. They sentimentalise it by assuming that children are little angels, they're little slivers of heaven that have floated down to earth, they haven't yet been corrupted by the world. And they sexualise it because, of course, the age of consent in 1865, when the book is first published, is only 12, and then is raised to 13, and is only then raised to 16, 20 years later. So there are lots of child prostitutes around. Um, so sentimentalising and sexualising, that is precisely what we do to children today. So in some ways, just as Alice has become a strange, distorted um, looking glass for our own fears, so Carol too has become a distorted looking glass for our fears about ourselves as a culture. It's interesting, isn't it, thinking about the text, if you had to sort of sum it up, which is kind of impossible to do, it is about just endlessly sort of tearing up hierarchies and messing up boundaries and turning things on their head. Everything is down the rabbit hole, isn't it? It is, and, and that's one of the things that Carol was so interested in, pushing things to the limits to discover where those limits are. 
Um, and often that involves uh, flipping things over, turning them inside out and upside down. And sometimes, like his own innocence, it involves pushing that to the very limits. For instance, addressing little girls as my darling. Is it a game? Is it a flirtation? Is it a confession? We don't know, but that's precisely why he was so interested. That's why he loved puns. That's why he loved portmanteau words. That's why he loved photography. It was a way in which you could bring things together without having to reconcile them. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating in this book was just putting together all those things that were happening at the same time and realising that, of course, they were reflecting, the book was reflecting something. So all the kind of animals metamorphosing into different things is sort of somehow connected to Darwinism and changing theories of evolution. Animals, for example, weren't just fixed things, they were changing things. Yes, that's right. And, and we, we, we tend to forget um, that even the Cheshire cat has very sharp teeth and very long claws, we are told. So this is a world of... It's a dangerous um, book. It is, it is. It's, you know, cat-eat-cat as well as dog-eat-dog world. Uh, and also it's a dream that um, is taking place on a riverbank. And, of course, it's the tangled bank that Darwin had written about just a few years earlier, which suggested that the world was indeed full of um, hidden but uh, uh, extremely menacing uh, dangers. One thing I wanted to ask you was when you write a book that involves looking so closely at a work that's meant so much to you throughout your entire life, more or less, do you somehow sort of, as it were, empty it out? Do you end up with a kind of destroyed sort of relationship with that book or do you end up feeling far far closer to it that's that's such an interesting question um it, it can work in that way that you can feel that it's like eating a box of chocolates and you feel slightly sick by the end of it uh, and you never ever want to eat another chocolate again um but on the other hand if it is a book like this which is not really a puzzle with a solution uh, it is a set of um uh, anxieties and dilemmas and uncertainties that never really resolve themselves what you do feel you're doing is kind of picking away at something and once you think you've revealed a picture then it changes uh, or another metaphor might be a jigsaw puzzle that um, Carol himself loved jigsaw puzzles but he loved all kinds of puzzles all kind of puzzles yeah. um, but, but here you've got a jigsaw without a picture so that you can move the pieces into lots of different combinations and each time you think you manage to solve it but then you realise there's something missing or there's something sticking out over the edge and then you have to um, break it up and, and start it all over again. Do you feel that children now still read Alice? They do, but um, not necessarily directly. They read it indirectly through the effect that it had on books like, say, The Wizard of Oz um, or uh, the Narnia books. Uh, or more recent books like, say, Rooftoppers, um, these books simply wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for the example of Alice. And a question that we can't really answer, but do you think we'll be making a big fanfare when Alice is 200 years old? Well, of course, she'll always be seven. So no matter how old she gets, in some ways, we'll actually be thinking about ourselves when we look at her. Robert Douglas Fairhurst, thank you so much. Thank you. Suzanne Dean has designed many iconic book jackets as creative director at Random House. But how did she go about designing the jacket for Robert Douglas Fairhurst's The Story of Alice, working with such a famous image? I'm joined now by Suzanne to talk about the design process and why the image of Alice has made such a lasting impression, inspiring filmmakers, designers, musicians and many readers around the world. Welcome, Suzanne. Hello. 
Just tell us about that sort of moment when somebody says, OK, we're doing a book about Alice. What should we put on the front? Yes, well, well you certainly feel um, a little bit, well, um, what else could be on the cover apart from the wonderful tenual illustrations? I mean, they are so fantastic, um, iconic, witty and characterful. What else could you put on there? Um, so that's how I started off thinking. That image immediately comes to mind, but then, of course, you have to turn it into a book. It has to look like a book that you're going to pick up off the shelf, so it has to have the title, it has to have Robert's name. Yes. Well, um, I felt it required approach that combined the contemporary and but suggested the past as well, because obviously it was 150 years ago since it was first published. And it needed to um, allude to the ma a major theme within the story of Alice, which is the precise nature of the triangular relationship between Carol, the real Alice, and the fictional Alice, of course. Um, and so I've researched lots of pictures of Alice, and it's quite interesting how she's developed over the time. But as I say, I couldn't use anything but the wonderful tenure illustrations. First thing I, I started to work on was the tenure drawing of Alice that was merging into and out of the mirror. And I was looking to see whether I could use that on the front and back of the cover. But actually, it was fun, it was witty, but it didn't quite do it. It wasn't strong or bold enough. So um, often when I'm working, an idea sometimes takes a long time to come and I sort of work around it and I produce lots and lots of covers. Or something is like um, a bullet, it will swing in and then nothing else can replace it. And it was at that moment, that bullet moment, when I thought, OK, let's take that tenure drawing and change it into a silhouette. And that's how I started to develop the cover, because the cover's got a wonderful silhouette on the front, which is Alice holding the pig. And it's it really does say something about how iconic the illustration is, because, of course we can all recognise that it is Alice holding the pig. And um, to sort of reference the sort of um, the, the content and the themes, the darker elements of the novel, I painted the silhouette in um, quink ink. And that's one of my favourite things to use because it separates as you paint it. It's sort of, um, it's all the bits in it sort of merge out. So you get this inky darkness to a slightly lighter, more intense blue in it. And of course, blue is so important for Alice. has well, to be blue. You say that, but of course, her image has changed so many times, hasn't it? And you know, her dress is not always blue. Sometimes we, no. were, we were just looking at a picture just now of, of her in a green dress and you were saying, well, this just doesn't feel right. Yes. But she has been She's, malleable, hasn't she? She definitely has. I mean, certainly Alice, when she was first drawn in colour, one of Tenniel's drawings, she was in yellow with blue trim and her costume slightly changed over the time period and she followed fashion. So there are illustrations from the 30s and the 40s where she's dressed much more in the costume of, of the time. And it wasn't until the 50s when um, Disney did their illustrations and they look back at Tenniel's original illustrations and that's where we get the blue dress the Alice band, the shoes, and it's imprinted into our mind. And somehow it does seem wrong when, um, say, for instance, what, what I was showing you was an illustration of Alice in a green dress with red tights and a, a red bow. And 
it's a children's book that's just come out that by Anthony Brown and they're wonderful wonderful illustrations fantastic drawer um but it's weird I just can't get past the fact that she's not in blue what do you think most of us do think of when we think of Alice do you think we do go back to those line drawings that might have appeared in books um when that we read when we were children or do you think we filter it via Disney how do you think it works well I think Disney has um enhanced it let's put it that cemented way it, cemented it yes. yes um and I think it is those original those original drawings I mean who's to say what the children who are reading Anthony Brown's version or Helen Oxenbury's version will feel in the future but it's Alice with the pinafore, with the stripy legs, with the Alice band, with the black shoes, that resonates. It's interesting too, isn't it, that of course, although we're talking about Alice, there are so many other things. I mean, the Cheshire Cat, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the Queen of Hearts. I mean, all those amazing images. They must have been an immense sort of challenge for an illustrator. Yes, and, and um, Tenya was uh, the chief illustrator of Punch and... He's, his work was known by Lewis Carroll and he was approached to work on this and what he was so good at and he was the caricature and putting together the animals' heads with the bodies of humans, those kinds of things. And that really was one of the reasons why he was keen to do the second book and he and Lewis Carroll spoke a lot and Lewis Carroll told him in great detail about all the characters and that's why I think that they meld so well with the text and also what's interesting is that the illustrations are placed within the text and sometimes it's broken up or fitted around it in a particular way so that the text and the illustration the design makes it a piece and I think that helps enhance the text really. Yes it's impossible to imagine Alice in Wonderland without those illustrations, isn't it? But of course she has had such an extraordinary design afterlife. I mean, tell us a little bit about some of the things that are happening kind of right now, the, you know, the, the sort of manifestations of Alice as it were right now. Well, of course Alice is a blank canvas and the more that artists and designers, etc., photographers um, use her as their source of inspiration, she becomes... Um, more able to absorb the range of combinations. And um, I think her sheer allure just grows and grows. And I'm thinking um, there was the Malice in Wonderland GQ shoot that had Kate Moss as the white rabbit. Mm. I think of Grayson Perry in his Alice dress. I've seen a photograph of that. Um, then we've got um, the Van Shoes that have just come out they're using um, Voices illustrations, um, the Liberties illustrations from the 1920s as a pattern over the shoes. And actually, um, I've seen loads of photographs of Japanese street style where um, teenagers are really echoing Alice's costume, but with great big chunky shoes. So Alice will, in that particular example, will go out to... Um be exported to a completely different culture and then be sort of... Interpreted. Interpreted in a completely Absolutely. different way. Yes. And that's what's so interesting. When you see um, people dressing up around the world in their interpretation of Alice, but bringing a little bit of themselves and their culture 
to the Alice that we recognise. And I think Vivian Westwood has also had her interpretations. Absolutely. Um, I mean, she's done a, a classic cover, for vintage classic cover for us. And she uses the um, Harlequin print, which is so well known and connected with her um, clothes and um, has been since the 1980s. And really, I suppose that echoes the hazy, kaleidoscopic fantasy world that Alice is in. And of course, Vivian Westwood was such a great match for Alice in Wonderland because of her um, twisted take on Britishness. Suzanne, it doesn't seem like Alice is really sort of going anywhere image-wise. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, she evolves, she develops, she, we have a blank canvas. Who knows what somebody is going to do next? And that's actually what's so wonderful is that, mm. like the silhouette on the book, she has such iconography around her, but is a blank canvas. Many thanks for joining us. That's all from us this month. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast and thanks to my guests Robert Douglas Fairhurst and Suzanne Dean. If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage Podcast or would like to listen again, you can find all our episodes on our website www.vintage-books.co.uk. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.